Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributor. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful Good morning. I'm Jen, and I've been part of the West Hills Friends community for about eight years. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. There lived in Jerusalem a man named Simeon. He was devout and just, anticipating the consolation of Israel, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't see death until he had seen the Messiah of God. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, Simeon came to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform the customary rituals of the law, he took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Now, O God, you can dismiss your servant in peace, just as you promised, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you prepared for all peoples to see, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. As the child's mother and father stood there marveling at the things that were being said, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, This child is destined to be the downfall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that is rejected so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. I've been led to share a story today. Before I do, I want to acknowledge that this story and the dreams that give rise to, to it did not belong to me only, but are informed by those like Simeon who seek consolation and justice, who find liberation from systemic power and privilege in the present Christ. In the spirit of Simeon's story, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge, as I have been taught, a wound that exists in this place. We are here on land that was unjustly ceded, stolen from the Atfaliti, Kalapuya, and the Multnomah Chinook, the original people who have cared for this place since time immemorial, who care for it now, whose ancestors and dreams from the beginning of memory are in this land and water. Simeon describes Jesus' birth and life as an inversion the downfall and rise of many within the social and political order, both a challenge and a consolation. Like Simeon, I hope that the story that follows helps the light reveal to all of us the different ways we might work toward that kinship of the beloved community in our thoughts, words, actions, and relationships. A town spanned two sides of a river this river had formed long ago over a fault line between two land masses. As generations came and went, the river canyon grew wider and deeper through a series of earthquakes. Gradually, it was transformed into a chasm. 
This chasm was not only geologic, the best sources of water and soil for growing food were on the east side. As the distance across the chasm increased, it became more difficult for people from one side to hear those on the other. A shout from the west side toward the east, I need food, echoed across the chasm. Shoes? We'll send you some shoes, someone responded, and a trebuchet launched a single pair of shoes over the chasm. The chasm groaned. The earth trembled and widened an inch further. The earthquakes increased in magnitude as the villagers strained to hear each other. People on both sides of the canyon began to anticipate and dread the shaking. But for those living on the west side of the canyon, the need for food, water, and other materials grew even greater. Several of them shouted together more loudly, we are sick, we need before the sentence was even complete, the trebuchet had already launched an anticipatory reaction. Sticks, sending sticks. Three bundles of sticks flew over the canyon, some of them hitting the villagers. The shaking began immediately and lasted 45 seconds. People on both sides of the canyon held each other tightly. Alarmed by the increasing danger, the people on the east side had an idea. We'll rubberize our foundations, they declared, and quickly took to the task. They were so busy attending to it that cries from the west side fell on deaf ears. The shaking was unprecedented, a full minute. Houses on both sides of the canyon began to suffer serious damage, which prompted the east side to focus even more intently on protecting their homes. How much safer and, and better life would be without earthquakes or panic, they thought, oblivious to the west side's increasing despair and rage. Some teenagers in the village were devastated. Not long ago, they had flown paper airplanes back and forth to each other across the canyon. Gradually, the distance became nearly impossible to tra traverse. Families began insisting on avoidance of the canyon area for their own safety. On an evening when the wind was unusually calm, a solitary airplane made it across. A note written on the airplane said, how are you, friends? The teens who received it felt a chasm of sadness forming inside. Their need to connect with these friends was so strong they could no longer put it aside. But how? As the wind kicked back up, only one way became apparent. Slowly, two of them began descending down into the chasm, foot by foot, hand in hand for balance and strength. Their need for authentic connection was greater than their fears and urges to climb back out to safety. By midnight, they made it to the deepest part of the chasm. There, next to the stream at the bottom, two friends from the other side were building a fire. They felt a sense of relief, but also uncertainty. What have we gotten ourselves into, one wondered aloud. What will happen if we are down here with an earthquake strikes? It doesn't feel safe. Yet, I do feel stronger with all of us here, came the reply. They shared stories through the night, piecing together an awareness of their family's roles in the social and geologic patterns that created disparity, fear, and conflict at the surface. 
In the morning, as dawn woke the village, a pair of friends from both sides of the canyon were seen ascending each side of the rim. As the shocking news rippled throughout the villages, people were filled with questions. For the first time in decades, they noticed that the earth was still as they listened and heard about the young people's dark night in the chasm, as well as what life was like on the other side. As the stories continued, the teens wondered aloud what could be done. Addressing the root causes of the rift would require, at minimum, a re redistribution of food, water, and resources, as well as changing daily routines and language limited by fear and assumptions about one another. Although none of them could change the circumstances into which they were born, they could continue to listen to before acting, guided by concern for each other's well-being. Even those who lived on the far side of town, away from the canyon, understood that their involvement was necessary for systemic, <clears throat> systemic change, just as everyone would benefit from the milder and less frequent earthquakes that came with listening and naming injustice. This story of the, ch <clears throat> the chasm depicts an overly simplistic and incomplete picture of privilege. I wonder, though, how it might be illuminated by, Sim by Simeon's prophecy of the light of revelation, the salvation for all peoples to see, and a sign that is rejected so that the th secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. In Quaker practice, we listen for how God speaks to us through story, recognizing that it is different for each of us. I'll name a few aspects that stand out for me. Fear is a common reaction when embarking on conversations about privilege. This can be true both for those coming from a place of power as well as a place of marginalization. Privilege and power are so deeply ingrained in how we live that facing it for the first time might feel like peering over the edge of that chasm, a place that might feel unsafe and best avoided or rejected. I have come to understand that privilege protects itself through our silence, and that fear is privilege trying to coerce us into that silence. Naming privilege, then, becomes not only necessary for justice, but also an act of courage and strength. For me, naming privilege also means continuing revelation and recognition of the myriad ways that I am complicit in it. By virtue of my participation, in the system that creates it. My understanding of the salvation Simeon speaks of is the collective mutual liberation of the beloved community, which we create together, not alone. Yet this beloved community only becomes possible when I first open myself to the manifestations of privilege in my own life and how it hurts others. When I choose to enter the depths of that chasm, and uncover the ways that privilege infiltrates my thoughts and actions. In that place, I can confront my internal resistance and move into awareness and action. Another aspect of the story is noticing when we insulate ourselves from the voices of those who are marginalized. Denying or discounting the effects of privilege creates dissonance that can escalate to anger. When we listen and bear witness to that harm and anger, 
we affirm that injustice is real. Judgments about the wrongness of anger among marginalized people often discount the realities of systemic violence and dissonance, blocking, <clears throat> blocking empathy and impeding the realization of justice. So far, this story has described privilege and power in neutral terms, but privilege is anything but neutral. This message would be incomplete without laying bare a pervasive and deeply ingrained manifestation of privilege, racism. In looking at health and other quality of life outcomes across the US, race and ethnicity consistently predict disparity, both separately and intersecting within other forms of privilege. To me, discussing privilege without naming racism is like talking about a massive, gray, leather-skinned herbivore that squirts water out of its trunk without calling it an elephant and omitting the fact that it happens to be the largest terrestrial mammal. My apologies to any actual elephants in the room. As with other forms of privilege, the power and tenacity of racism is strengthened when we are, si we are silent about it. Naming it directly begins to diffuse the power it has over us and enables us to identify, understand, and eventually dismantle it. In talking about racism, I recognize the limitations of what I can know about privilege as a white person. I can only see and feel the leathery skin of the elephant's rump, maybe occasionally a flick of its tail, while others are being drenched in water or crushed by the weight of a massive foot on top of them. I do what I can to keep listening, amplify demands for justice and relief, and describe what I see and hear of this elephant to people nearby so that together we can stop har further harm. Friends, none of us can know the entire elephant from the place where we stand, unless we, are, we listen with open hearts and forge relationships outside of our own identities and experiences toward the goal of moving the elephant off those who are being hurt. Sometimes the most important thing we can do is get out of the way. Facing our fears, acknowledging the reality of privilege and our complicity in it, bearing witness to harm and disparity, taking action to dismantle privilege, and amplifying the voices of those marginalized by it are all necessary parts of this story. Where is the inward teacher, the present Christ, inviting and accompanying you within this narrative? How can we speak more plainly and directly to racism and other forms of privilege, both within our meeting and within our communities? <clears throat>